Great joy to welcome you today. I'd like to invite you to turn with me on this first Lord's Day of the year to Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter three. The month January is named for the Roman god Janus. Most of our months are named after those Roman gods and you would have found that from about 150 years BC, anywhere in the Roman Empire, those who worshiped those various deities would have had this particular emblem of some fashion on their door, it was, or just near it. it was, he was this god of open doors, this god of opportunities. And so he was always a god with two faces, looking back, looking ahead. And so this first of months in a new journey around the sun for Romans began to be associated with him. They recognized it was a time to reflect on the past and ponder the future. How many of you are glad that both past and future belong to Jesus, not Janus? Amen. And I didn't mean Janus, you know, but that Janus. Jesus is Lord of past and present and future. He is the one by whom all things exist and our whole lives belong to him. This is vital for us as we take a few moments today to ponder together how we enter this next year considering how the Lord who is for us may lead us. It is a question, of course, of how we keep the main thing the main thing. In his poem, Choruses from the Rock, T.S. Eliot writes that the endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion but not stillness, knowledge of speech but not silence, knowledge of words, but ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us closer to our ignorance and our ignorance nearer to death, but nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information. There is no shortage in our world right now of information. We are, in fact, completely connected in such a way, whether through devices that we carry or social media we engage in or news that we see from all over the world, events that happen on the other side of the planet, are instantaneously brought to our attention, and in some ways we're asked to respond to that. We make these distant things our business. And then there's just the business at hand of every single day that we all have. After a, a break at Christmas, you probably opened up your browser to some five or 600 emails and perhaps felt a bit of pressure to have to deal with all of those right then. There are Endless priorities involved in all of that information, constant demands that are placed upon us, whether by career and work 
or family. All of these are claimants for priority. And we have to, at this particular moment, take the opportunity to ask, looking ahead, what will be our highest, greatest good, our chief aim in this coming year, this next journey around the sun? It's what was called in the Latin language, the sumum bonum, the highest good, the greatest good. What is our greatest good? There are many competitors for that, that highest good, that one objective that shapes everything else. This summer, this coming summer, athletes will stand on podiums and receive medals in the Olympics to mark the achievement that they have reached because they made that a highest good. What is our highest good? Well, family, family is my highest good and family must be a great good. Well, well, uh, my career, getting that degree, these are, my, these are the chief aims. This is what I'm here for. This is why I live. My highest good. I, the dolphins have to win tonight. This is my, my life depends on this. Football is life. My summum bonum, my highest good. You might even make church your greatest good. But it must not be so. Because while all of these things are delightful and gifts and beautiful and great graces in our lives, Paul in this letter lays out before us the Christians' highest good, our summum bonum, our great passion. And the great passion is not a thing, but a person. Philippians chapter 3, read along with me, verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value. There it is. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward for what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says in this passage, the surpassing value in our lives is a person. In fact, he says it's a relationship with a person. The surpassing value, he says in verse eight, of knowing Jesus Christ. Now, knowledge in the Western tradition is associated with something that's intellectual. We have a a comprehensive understanding of a subject or perhaps an introductory awareness to that subject, and we're trying to learn new things about it. And so we associate the word knowledge with something which is intellectual. But for Paul, as a Hebrew, as a rabbi, as a Jewish man, that word knowledge was not simply intellectual, though it included it. It was relational. It was about being united to another person. That's to know someone, to be in relationship, to be joined to them. The Hebrew word that's behind all of this is still common use today in Yiddish. It's the word yada. And it has to do with the relationship between a husband and a wife being joined, the two becoming one. The King James Version describes Adam and Eve's joining in those terms. It says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. So it has to do with that intimate joining together, yada, yada, yada. They were joined together. And that means that the knowledge Paul is talking about is not simply being aware of or having an understanding of, but being united to someone. Every Husband and wife here in the congregation today has been relationally joined. Now, the intellectual comes with it. The awareness comes with it. If I said to every husband in the room, are you, or do you know your wife? Are you united to your wife? Yes. If I said, do you understand her? You'd say, get back to me on that one. I need some more time. And what happens is in this joining is a transformation. The relationship transforms us. We become different people. The two become one. And of course, the old story is you spend 50 years deciding which one. Because all this time together means, if you've noticed, some folks even end up looking alike. There is a change that takes place. Tim Keller used to say, that Kathy had been married to six different husbands and they were all him. Because we impact each other's lives. We change and grow over time. Somebody says, he's not the man that I married. No, you changed him. (laughs) He's not the same. And you're not the same. You know one another. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Friends, as we make this journey together, our greatest, highest good, our supreme aim, our greatest goal should be this, to know Jesus, to know him 
to be in relationship with him, to walk with him. If we make that our greatest good, our highest good, not working for him, knowing him, walking with him, then all the other work that must be done will flow from it. All the worship will rise because of it. All of the mission will be accomplished through the grace of his presence in our lives. All the changes we are desperate for in our own hearts will take place because we know him. We are changed by not our efforts, but by being united to him. Calvin wrote, this is how we change. Calvin noted in his Institutes of the Christian Religion that without a proper knowledge of God, there could be no knowledge of ourselves. As long as we fail to see God for who he truly is in all of his majesty, we'll never recognize or scrutinize our own lowly state, but rather we'll continue to view ourselves in our natural fallen condition as basically good. But we aren't, are we? Our fallenness is an assertion in the Bible which is empirically demonstrated day after day in human history. Jeremiah said, our hearts are desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so we know that change cannot come from within ourselves. Change must happen because Christ comes to dwell in us and we are united to him. This is why Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that you would know God and Jesus whom he has sent. It's why Jeremiah wrote, let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. No, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. This is our boast. Christ himself, his cross, and knowing him, learning of him. And if we make this our objective, this knowing of God, then we will come to realize how good he is. And you say, well, pastor, I know the Lord. I know the Lord. Yes, but that's like saying, you know the ocean. I've been in the ocean. Have you been to the ocean? There's more. If you've been a Christian for 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years, there's still more that God wants you to know of him. And if you've been a Christian for only a few hours, you have just set out on the greatest adventure any human can ever go on because the God who made the universe has decided to have a relationship with you, to join himself to you, to reveal himself to you in Jesus Christ. I have forsaken everything, Paul says, in view of, look at it again in verse eight, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He lists a few things here which we need to note as we pursue this relationship that are foundational to it. Here's the first one, radical grace, radical grace. Why is that important? Here's what Paul says. Verse seven, whatever things were gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. 
He says he wants to know Jesus. And he says then in verse nine, here's why this is so. He says, I count everything rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There's two kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness we achieve, and there's a righteousness we receive. And only one of those can be the basis of a relationship with God. If you think for even a second that it is a relationship with God, knowing God is based on your performance, and we've stressed this over the last year in our studies in Galatians, that if we simply do enough that somehow, perhaps, if we're good enough, then God will accept us and enter into a relationship with us. That's a completely false notion. And that's why Paul says, I count all things loss. What's he referring to? He's referring not to bad things, he's referring to good things. He's talking about his rabbinic training. He's talking about his national pedigree. He's talking about all of those things in our lives, his achievements, his zeal for the law. So his religious zeal, his achieved righteousness. And he says, I count all those things as loss in view of knowing Jesus because I want his righteousness. You have a righteousness that you can achieve, but Paul says it's not good enough because, because every single thing we try to do, look, if you had a good day, you would rejoice but you would know the next day would be problematic. And you would always be burdened with those failures, those things you wanted to say but didn't say, the things you wanted to do but didn't do. You would go, oh, I'm not, I'm not where I need to be. Paul says that, I, I'm not there yet. We all know this. If we had a humble day, we'd be proud of it. We know that erupting out of us is a corruption which can only be cured by the resurrection and the return of Jesus. So we must depend not on an achieved righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is given to us, graced to us. And we rest in that. We go, no, 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 my righteousness is Jesus himself. And you, you simply walk away from all those things which it turns out are not just bad, but even the good. You don't boast in those. Look at it again in verse eight. He says, he says, more than that, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All the righteousness that we try to achieve, Paul says it's, it's rubbish. That's how the NAS translates it. Some other English translations get a little bit closer and, 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 and they say, I count it as dung. But that's kind of polite, to be honest. The Greek word that Paul uses here, I don't always like to bring out a lot of Greek words and, and I'm not asking you to remember many, but this is one you might want to take home with you. The word that Paul uses here is I count them as scubalon. It's a great word, scubalon. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, let me just put it to you this way. If chariots in Paul's day had 
had bumper stickers. Some of them would have read, Scubalon happens. <laughs> I count all the good stuff, all the bad stuff, the whole of my past, I count it as Scubalon. Scat. In view of, compared with, Jesus and who he is. You see, friends, there's nothing we achieve. There's a grace we receive. And that grace isn't a membership card to wave when you get to heaven. It's the gift of a person. Jesus gives you himself. Come and know me. And this always leads to resurrection hope. Verse 10, that I may know him. Would you say it with me? That I may know him. That I may know him. And look what follows right on the heels of knowing Jesus. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Jesus leads to resurrection. I'd love to stand up here this morning and give you a prophecy and say, nobody here this year is gonna suffer. But we all know that all people suffer. Christians suffer as all people suffer. There's physical suffering, there's mental anguish, there's relational pain. There's the suffering of death and grief and sorrow, whether our own or those we love. There are sorrows, there are trials, there's the suffering of constant temptations that many of us wrestle with. Satan designs suffering to destroy our faith. God, who is himself the suffering God, in whose heart a cross was planted in eternity past, there was a heart, a cross in the heart of God before there was ever a cross on a hill called Calvary. God is the God who comes with us into our suffering, into our pain, experiencing our temptations, bearing our sins, carrying our sorrows. The one who is with us in the valley of the shadow of death, who knows every single ounce of anguish that we know, who makes it his own. This suffering God who is with us designs suffering in our lives not to destroy our faith, but to purge it. Our pain the fellowship of his suffering helps us to begin to embody the truth we say we believe. This is part of what changes us. This is why with an eye on the resurrection, we find ourselves being changed right now. You say, for instance, I believe that as a Christian, I should forgive others. And everybody would say, well, amen. Yes, that's right. That's part of this. One of the central things Jesus says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And so you hear, I sh you should forgive people. And you say, well, that's right, amen. But you don't know that you really believe that until you have someone to forgive. So God, this year, may send you someone to forgive. You know, why, I, I, why, why would he do that? So you learn to be like him. We learn to forgive the unforgivable in others because God forgives the unforgivable in us. How is that possible? Only by knowing Jesus, right? It doesn't come from our hearts. It comes from his heart, which changes ours. 
The hope of resurrection, the hope of that final day that we just sang of a few moments ago, the Lord will descend, the trump will resound, our faith will be made sight, the hope of that last day. Living with that on the horizon of our day leads us to the place where truth is rooted in our hearts through the trials that we endure. Paul suffered. But he saw in his suffering an opportunity to become like Christ. Suffering is what roots the truth in our existence. The pain of the wound becomes the opportunity to forgive. And when we forgive, we become like him. Every truth in the Bible you say you believe is accompanied by both wonder and wound. Wonder at its amazement and the wound that allows you to practice it, to become like the Lord who loves us. And that means finally we have to reach forward. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it, and we haven't. Or have already become perfect, and we haven't. Look what Paul says about the fact that we're not home yet. One thing I do, I do this. I forget, this is verse 13, I forget what lies behind and I reach forward for what's ahead. He says in the previous verse, there is an upward call. Every single one of us as believers have an, a call that's heavenward. It is what, you've heard people say he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. No friends, it's being heavenly minded that makes you an earthly good person. It's what prepares you for service in this world. And keeping an eye on that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that our lives are hidden here with God, and that we will be forever with the Lord is what transforms how we live here and now. And so Paul says, what I have to do with the past is this. I have to forget it. I can't be trapped by the past. Now that can happen a couple of ways. You can be trapped by past failure and shame. You can also be trapped by pride that's associated with your goodness and your success. You can look at your wealth and say, look at what I've achieved. Look at your career and say, look how powerful I am. But you see, all such things are fleeting. They are fragile boasts. But knowing Jesus, Jesus on the cross deals a death blow to our past when he says it is finished. He deals a death blow to our boasts in this life when he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Living for this world and its applause is a futile endeavor. It never satisfies the soul. There is one greatest good. There is one supreme good. It is Jesus himself. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 1 asks this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And answers it this way. That I am not my own. I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ by his spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. In that poem, Choruses from the Rock, T.S. Eliot says, a thousand policemen directing the traffic cannot tell you why you come or where you go. People will not be able to tell you why you should do something, where you should go. There is one alone who fashioned you, who gave his all to redeem you, who died on the cross to forgive you, who will come again, who sends his spirit to work in us now to change and transform us. There is one, and he is our greatest good. There is one who can give you the purpose, the call in your life. Every person in this room is called, called by God, Every person who names the name of Jesus can say with Paul, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead, I reach for the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And it's not based on anything from the past or anything I've achieved. It's based on what Jesus has done. And that alone, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. That's why we keep coming to this table. You see, our habit is to remember our sins and forget God's promise. But listen, friends, God's habit, listen to this, God's habit is to forget our sins and remember his promise. Oh, that's the best news you'll ever hear. He casts them as far as east is from west and in the sea of his forgetfulness. And he calls on us to remember his promise to us. And so he brings us to the table. I'd like for those who are serving at the table to go to your places. And we're gonna take a few minutes this morning to settle into our hearts this greatest good, this highest good, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord, of taking all the other supposed greatest goals, greatest achievements of this new year and just saying, no, no, no. I'm riding Scubalon across it all. And I'm saying yes to one greatest good, knowing Jesus for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Everything else let go of. He holds you. This morning, if you've not yet given your life to Christ, I pray you will. You can do that sitting right where you are. Don't eat or drink from the table. This is a meal for those who have given their lives to Jesus. If you have given your life to Jesus and you know you can't trust in your righteousness that you achieve, your only hope is in the righteousness of Jesus that you receive. That's your hope. You long for the day of his return. You don't fear it. You long for it. You want to see him. Then he invites us to come to this table because as Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death past as often as we eat or drink, present, until he comes, the future. Past, present, and future are all wrapped up in this meal because we are all wrapped up in his grace. And this reminds us 
that God forgets our sins and remembers his promise. Let's pray together. Take a moment with me just now and quietly in the place of your own heart, confess your sins to God and ask for his mercy in Jesus. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive our sins, they are many. We do not come to this table this morning because we are good, for we know we are not. We come because you are worthy, O Lamb of God, and you have paid the price. Not only to forgive us, but to make us yours forever. Establish in our hearts, establish in our hearts, Jesus, the passion to know you as our greatest good. It's in your matchless name we pray. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And this do, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Friends, always remember that God forgets your sins and remembers his promise and he will never leave you or forsake you. The deacons will dismiss you. By row, come to the table, receive the elements, we'll return to our seats, and then we'll all eat and drink together. Come to the table.